0: I've begun to realize that we use a lot of numbers on brain waves.
1: Empty delta sign in 30 to 35 percent of cases of thrombosis.
0: Fifty percent of press patients have an underlying autoimmune disorder.
1: Topamax at greater than 200 milligrams total daily dose.
0: All have personally, I find them useful. They connect you with the data that exists in the literature. They inform you about pretest probability for reaching a certain diagnosis, and they give you the odds of your outcome of interest or response to treatment. Numbers change clinical decision making. But I can imagine the numbers in a podcast can be a little daunting. So whatever your thoughts are about the use of numbers or the content of the podcasts, or even the music selection, let us know by emailing us at bweditorialboard at gmail.com or tweet us at Brainwaves Audio. And if you have a second, rate us on iTunes so we know how well we're doing and where we can improve. Any feedback is appreciated. Now let's get on to the show. Various forms of progressive paralysis, ascending or otherwise, have been recognized for centuries. While Jean-Baptiste Octave Landry has been credited with an apt description of several patients with distal sensory disturbances and ascending weakness after a viral prodrome, the first comprehensive description of an ascending paralysis would be provided later by William Osler in 1892. But Osler's original description was limited by the lack of available diagnostic techniques, specifically the lumbar puncture. Originally called Quincke's Procedure, after the German physician credited with its original technique, the lumbar puncture had been successfully implemented before Osler's 1892 description of ascending paralysis. However, this technique would not achieve routine diagnostic use until the 20th century, long after Osler's clinical monograph. Eventually, in 1916, three physicians by the names of Guillain, Barret, and Stroll wrote up a case series of two French soldiers with a summary statement that perfectly characterized this disease process. Among their initial remarks,
1: we bring to attention in the present note a clinical syndrome that we have observed in two individuals, a syndrome characterized by motor difficulty, abolition of deep tendon reflexes with preservation of cutaneous reflexes, paresthesias without demonstrable objective sensory loss, pain on deep palpation of large muscles, minor modifications in electrical reactions of nerve and muscle, and increased albumin in the cerebrospinal fluid, with, most notably, absence of cellular reaction.
0: Based on this description, in conjunction with that of Landry's earliest report, the eponym Landry-Guylain-Beret-Stroll syndrome was generated, or more simply today, the Guillain-Beret syndrome. Welcome back to Brainwaves, I'm Jim Siegler, and today we'll be discussing the Guillain-Beret syndrome. While the history of Guillain-Beret is actually pretty amusing, We've got a bit to cover in this episode. For those more interested in the historical background, in particular Guillaume's contention that, quote, his disease was entirely separate from Landry's earlier report, and the fact that Guillaume made no mention of Landry's 19th century description of a similar process, I recommend the 1990 review by Arthur Asbury in the Annals of Neurology, or in the 1994 perspective by Adela Fifi. Variants of Guillain-Barré I've seen many students and physicians use the terms Guillain-Barre and acute inflammatory demyelinating polyradicular neuropathy, or AIDP, interchangeably, but this is a mistake. GBS includes a wide variety of acquired polyneuropathies, only one of which is AIDP. True, AIDP is the most common variant of Guillain-Barre in the United States, accounting for 80% of all patients with GBS. Each of the other variants beyond this one are far less common. For example, acute motor axonal neuropathy is clinically indistinguishable from AIDP in the absence of electrophysiologic or serologic testing. But unlike AIDP, which typically follows a viral illness like CMV or EBV, AMON often complicates infections like Campylobacter jejuni. Also unlike AIDP, AMON has a strong association with the ganglioside antibodies GM1 and GD1A, rarely has sensory formications or autonomic involvement, and Amon is a more common variant of GBS in China. Another variant, the pharyngeal cervical brachial variant, progresses from the neck down as opposed to the characteristic ascending course of progression in AIDP, and this can mimic botulism in infants. The Miller-Fisher variant, which presents with a combination of ophthalmoparesis, areflexia, and or ataxic gait without any appendicular weakness, accounts for about 5% of all GBS cases. The Fisher variant is clinically relevant in that there is a ganglioside antibody strongly associated with it, the GQ1B antibody, which can be identified in the peripheral blood. There are also rare variants where motor manifestations are entirely or nearly entirely absent. Consider the Bickerstaff brainstem encephalitis, which can be mistaken for delirium or critical illness. Bickerstaff's is basically the Fisher variant, plus encephalopathy. And, like the Fischer variant, there is an association with GQ1B antibodies in 66% of cases of staffs. Even more rarely, a pure large fiber sensory variant can present with progressive sensory ataxia and autonomic disturbances, mimicking anti-HU perineoplastic syndrome or Sjogren's neuronopathy. An inpatient consultation request I've seen on several occasions concerns the question of a patient with a possible dysautonomia, while diabetes, uremia, drugs, toxins, Amyloidosis are all more likely. A GBS variant may also be considered in this neurologic differential. One of the more exciting elements of putting together this podcast was looking into the relationship of GBS with vaccinations. After having recently rotated at the Children's Hospital, I remember being asked about the neurologic complications of vaccines. Yes, including autism. And no, there is no relationship between vaccines and autism. But is there a relationship between vaccines and GBS? Well, that's a tough question. The relationship of GBS with vaccinations is so complex and controversial that entire manuscripts and textbooks have been dedicated to it, and the topic probably warrants an episode on brainwaves all to its own. For now, we will start by briefly summarizing the available evidence here and acknowledging both sides of the argument. In order to simplify things, I'll focus on data pertaining to influenza vaccines which has the strongest evidence. As everybody knows, it's accepted that GBS follows an antecedent infectious illness by about four to six weeks, whether it's Campylobacter or, more recently, the Zika virus. However, influenza infection is not traditionally thought to be a trigger of GBS according to some experts. In considering the largest influenza outbreak in recorded history, the Spanish influenza pandemic of 1918 to 1920, which affected up to one quarter of the world's population, There were no subsequent reports of a post-infectious ascending weakness, areflexia, or other descriptions of what would later be called the Guillain-Barré syndrome. Sure, GBS had only been identified two years before this outbreak, but still we did not see a flurry of papers describing any outbreaks of ascending paralysis during the same period. Furthermore, many of the subsequent studies over the next several decades, through the 1970s or so, proving a relationship between GBS and vaccinations failed to demonstrate any causality. The significant correlations are built on associations rather than causality, but the arguments are certainly compelling, so let's talk about them. Take, for instance, one French study of 405 patients with GBS, which showed a strong correlation with influenza like illness and GBS cases, nearly 20% of which had serologic evidence of a recent influenza infection. Similar findings were observed in a 15 year cohort study out of the UK where investigators showed a robust association between GBS and a recent influenza-like illness, but no relationship between GBS and the flu vaccine. According to another case-control study from a UK registry, influenza-like illnesses increased the odds of subsequent GBS by as much as 18-fold. From 1993 to 2002, England also witnessed a spike in hospital admissions for GBS, contemporaneously with spikes in positive flu serologies. But as I said earlier, these data, while robust and longitudinal, fail to show a causal relationship. So if we can make that intellectual leap, accepting that the flu might cause GBS, could a flu vaccine by preventing influenza also reduce the risk of GBS? Well, it turns out there's a slight risk of GBS among patients who receive the flu vaccine compared to patients who don't get vaccinated, but it's very tiny, like one in a million tiny, And now this begs the question, does getting the flu vaccine prevent influenza-associated GBS? Meaning, are you more likely in a given year to develop GBS from the flu, or are you more likely to develop GBS from a flu vaccine? Well, this is a really tough question, and after a lot of research on my end, I don't think that we have enough data to make any reasonable conclusions. And certainly the incidence is so low that no prospective study has been performed, because it would lack statistical power to answer that question you might need tens or hundreds of millions of patients to find a statistically significant difference in outcomes. That being said, the closest we've come to in answering that question was the previously mentioned 15-year cohort study out of the UK by Stowe and colleagues. In that study, the investigators showed a tenfold greater risk of GBS among patients with a recent influenza-like illness compared to patients who received a recent influenza vaccine. Therefore, if the chances of contracting influenza if you're unvaccinated is greater than 1 in 10, then these results suggest that the flu vaccine may be protective against GBS following influenza exposure. However, the likelihood of contracting influenza is less than a 1 in 10 chance for most immunocompetent persons, so technically you could argue that the influenza vaccine increases your relative risk of acquiring GBS. But nobody takes the flu vaccine to prevent GBS because it only happens once in every million cases or so. You take the flu vaccine to prevent the flu to prevent the achy, feverish, nauseating, nose-running, head-pounding illness that keeps you from doing anything but wishing you'd just taken the damn vaccine. And besides these common but nagging symptoms, the flu can be incredibly dangerous for some, particularly among children and healthcare personnel, increasing your risk of asthma exacerbation, bacterial co-infection, ARDS, tracheitis, ventilator-dependent respiratory failure, aseptic meningitis, sepsis, post-viral, bacterial pneumonia, lung abscess, renal myocarditis, and so on. There's no question that the flu vaccine is safer for you than the flu for these people, even if there is a tiny, tiny risk of GBS that comes with it. Even so, the incidence of post-vaccination GBS is decreasing, from 17 per 10 million vaccinations in 1993 to 4 per 10 million vaccinations in 2003. Hopefully, a newer generation of vaccines may prove more beneficial and protect against complications like Guillain-Barre syndrome. Let's move on to treatment and prognosis before I continue to drown you in numbers. I should be clear here that, as usual, Brainwaves is intended to provide medical education and not guide treatment decisions. For AIDP, treatment consists of plasma exchange at 250 mLs per kilogram divided over five alternating days, or intravenous immune globulin at 2 grams per kilogram divided over several days, usually five. Both are considered equally efficacious. I've seen some neurologists divide the dose of IBIG over two days in patients with myasthenia gravis, or CIDP. Aren't naive to pooled immunoglobulins. Plasma exchange was the first method studied, and compared to placebo, exchange reduced the duration of ventilator dependence by two weeks and the time to walk unsupported from 41 to 32 days. The combination of these two therapies, plasma exchange and IVIG, has been systematically evaluated and was not found to be superior to either therapy alone. And obviously, plasma exchange following IVIG is likely to clear out the immune you just infused. One board question you will certainly encounter is whether IVIG or plasmapheresis improves long-term outcomes or mortality in patients with guillain The answers are no and no. From my experience, the decision for plasmaphresis or IVIG depends on the type of patient and the risk-benefit ratio of each situation. In general, IVIG is quicker and easier to administer, but in patients with IgA deficiency, it's an absolute contraindication. You may also choose to defer IVIG in patients with a known predisposition to clotting, since older preparations may have increased the risk of venous thromboembolism. Other risks of IVIG include an aseptic meningitis, which is self-limiting, mild infusion reactions, rash, and a less than 2% risk of acute kidney injury. On the other hand, the provider might want to avoid plasma exchange in patients on active anticoagulation, since a large-bore catheter is required whose replacement risks bleeding. Since it takes longer to complete a course of exchange, about 10 business days, it may also increase the risk of certain hospitalization complications, like central line infections, deconditioning, and delayed rehabilitation placement. Besides immunomodulatory therapies, treatment for Guillain-Barré is largely supportive. All patients should be monitored for pulmonary function, usually with a negative inspiratory force and or forced vital capacity, at routine intervals. And intubation should be considered in patients with a declining respiratory function. Often, because GBS symptoms may continue to deteriorate up to four weeks after onset, patients require monitoring during this period as they worsen or until symptoms plateau. The prevention of DVTs in non-ambulatory patients using prophylactic anticoagulation and or compression stockings and precautions to prevent catheter-associated urinary tract infections in those with urinary retention should be pursued. Early physical therapy and rehabilitation is strongly encouraged when possible to prevent associated deconditioning. The big question we're always left with is, who's going to get better, and when? Like many diseases affecting the central nervous system, improvement can be quite delayed. And like I mentioned before, treatment with plasma exchange or IVIG can reduce the non-ambulatory time from a month and a half to just a month. And a month is a long time to be stuck in a bed, or in a wheelchair, or using a cane. But not everyone recovers fully. As many as 1 in 20 patients may actually die from GBS complications which include sepsis, ventilator-associated pneumonia, ARDS, or autonomic dysfunction. Among survivors, 20% remain non-ambulatory at about 6 months, and full recovery, which is more the rule than the exception, is reported to take an average of 200 days. Patients less likely to achieve these positive outcomes include those who become ventilator-dependent, a complication associated with an impressive mortality rate of 1 in 5. Other poor prognostic features include a rapid symptom progression, older age, with more than 60 years being an accepted cutoff, and features suggestive of axon loss, as opposed to demyelination, i.e. reduced CMAPs on the EMG, absent motor responses, and a preceding diarrheal illness suggesting campylobacter infection, which is associated with AMON, as opposed to AIDP. A GBS outcome score has also been developed called the Erasmus GBS outcome score, or EGOS, which incorporates age, preceding diarrheal illness, and a GBS disability score. There's also a modified version of this EGUS, which is utilized at some centers for prognostication. Well, I think that sums it up. The Ombray syndrome, its history, the variants, the controversial connection it has to vaccinations, the treatment, and the prognosis—all on brainwaves. Continuing medical audiocation for neurologists and trainees. Be sure to rate us on iTunes if you haven't already. And if you have any ideas for future topics, something you'd like to hear more about, send them our way and we'll take a look. I'm Jim Siegler. Thanks for listening.
1: If you like what you just heard, you can find more related material on the web at brainwaves.me or find us on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio. Feel free to contact us at bweditorialboard at gmail.com. Be sure to check out our iTunes archive for older episodes. This episode was produced by Jim Siegler. Music by Lee Rosebeer. I'm Erica Mejia. Join us next time for another edition of Brainwaves.